0: Good morning, my name is Bailey McKim. This morning our scripture reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 from the New American Standard Bible. Consider the work of God for who is able to straighten what he has bent. In the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Good morning. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to see you all this morning. We're gonna to continue today in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're gonna be in chapter seven today. And generally, we've been asking the question: what's the point? Of anything and everything? What's the point of life? And today, there's more specific question under that question is this question. Is it possible? to know what will happen in the future. How much control do you really have over what hasn't occurred yet? What is the best predictor of future performance? In reality, we know this is really hard. The NFL hasn't figured this out yet. Your marriage hasn't figured this out yet. How do you know what will happen tomorrow? How do you guarantee tomorrow's success or avoid tomorrow's failure? If you were lying on your deathbed and you had three truths or principles or schemes or patterns you want to pass on to those you are leaving behind, you say, These are the three keys to life. What are they? What's the wisest thing you can offer your loved ones as you leave? So many of us have an insight or a formula, a principle, a truth, a system, a worldview, a pattern, wisdom, really, about how things play out and why. Uh, A famous example of this is the marshmallow experiment. I've talked about this a couple of times before. We learned from the marshmallow experiment that uh, at first we learned that its life and its success is all about delaying gratification, right? It's about your willpower. If you can do the harder thing first and really save the easier, more pleasurable things for later, then you're going to do well. And then they went back to those results, reinterpreted it, and said, actually, it's not willpower, but it's really about distraction. Your ability to distract yourself so that you're not uh, jumping the gun is really, that's really the key to life. And then years later, they went back to the results and reinterpreted it and said, actually, it's not about willpower. It's not even about distraction, but what we have found is that the kids who were able to delay gratification or distract themselves came from families that practiced a mindset of abundance. And the kids who chomped on their marshmallows too soon came from families where there was scarcity, and they didn't know if they refused this marshmallow, if there was ever going to be another chance like it. So the researcher said, you have to really... Work hard early on in kids' lives to help them believe that there is a world of abundance out there for them, that there will be provision, there will be other opportunities. They don't have to um, latch on to the current one necessarily. Is that the key to life? A big idea these days that I hear about, I've been hearing about for the last few years, is the idea of grit. That You have to have passion and practice and partners and believe that victory is possible. That effort matters at least twice as much as your competence or intelligence. So the key to life, to success, is effort. Is that true? Is that the one key to life that can predict what will happen? What do you think? Maybe... You believe in technology. Maybe you believe in networking. Maybe you believe in seed money. Good friendships. Living in the right city. Having the right job. Being married to the right person. Finding the right church, which you have. (laughs) What is the key to life? What do you believe? One of the, I think, the greatest and sharpest thematic shifts in my life as I was thinking about this is there was a long period of time in my life where I believed life was all about the sprint. You work really, really hard. You burn bright, but only for a short period of time. You give it your all. And it's reflected in my running career. I remember for years, I was part of the New York Roadrunners Club, and I ran only 10Ks and 5Ks and uh, even one-milers because that's what I was training to do, to sprint. You see that in my uh, work life. I planted or helped plant six churches in 12 years. That's, that's craziness. But that's how I lived. And uh, it led me down a path towards burnout, where I became deeply disillusioned with life, with myself, with the church, with God. And now, all I really want to do are endurance sports. I'm looking forward to the Boston Marathon in April. I'm looking forward to the 13-mile paddleboarding race around the island on September 17th. I have zero interest in speed And if I set out to run ten miles that day, but I don't really feel it in my body, I'm I'm okay just running one mile. Because it's not about perfection. It's not about everything and all, but it's about restraint and humility and really a long obedience, as Eugene Peterson says, in the same direction. That's what I believe now. For me. What's your secret sauce? Verse 14 says, In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So sometimes in your life, happy things happen. And sometimes in your life, tragedy happens. Sometimes there's justice Sometimes there's injustice. Sometimes there is gain. Sometimes there is loss. Sometimes the day is dark. Sometimes it is bright. But Ecclesiastes says God has set things in such a way that we can never know what will happen after us. We cannot know the future. In fact, even secular uh, scientists have a word for this. It's called affective forecasting. It's a fallacy. You can't do it. You cannot know what will come after you. As bright as you are, as honest as you are, you cannot predict the movement of God. So that's what we want to meditate on today today. And today, uh, here's what I'm hoping happens today. I'm hoping that you're going to shift a little bit. Now, I want you all to do a little exercise. I want you to hold your life, okay? Your life is this thing in front of you, the air in front of you. Now, squeeze and white-knuckle your life as hard as you can. Just try. Just keep squeezing harder until all the blood is gone. (laughs) Now let it go and hold it open and loose. These are two very different ways to live. It's a complete shift in approach to life. And I would like us to shift from this, from this white-knuckled experience filled with anxiety and fears and stress and competitiveness and survival of the fittest to trusting, humble, loose. Really what I want to say to you is wait for it. Things are not all as they seem. You can celebrate an amazing thing that's happened in your life, but who knows, it can turn out to be a curse. Or this tragedy befalls you and darkness has come upon you. But wait for it, don't judge it yet. Because who knows, deep joy may come from that. You just can't know right now. So wait for it. I'd like us to walk out of here centered and calm, open, trusting, and hopeful, and ready to respond to whatever life may throw your way, knowing, knowing God has made the one as well as the other. He is in charge, not you. He's in control and not us. The preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, considers many secret sauces to life. He first says that a name is better than ointment. What does this mean? It means that who you are, your character, your reputation, your smell, the smell you're giving off from the inner being of who you are is better than any perfume you can put on yourself. That's what that is. So that's one truth he's observed about life, that a a great name is better than great ointment. You can fake it. You can mask, lead with the mask, but really who you are is better. He says the day of death is better than the day of birth. That the day of mourning is better than the day of feasting. And he says this because on the day of your death, you have great sobriety about you. You tend to speak the truth. You tend to speak from a deep place. When you're mourning, you're uh, more in touch with reality. But on the day of your birth, you're naive. And when you're feasting, there's a lot of pretense, passing things that you're enjoying, but it'll be gone. And reality waits for you. So he says that sorrow is better than laughter. Because even though outwardly you may be shedding tears inside, some part of you knows this is going to lead to joy, maturity, a sense of Completion and wholeness. Or sometimes you're laughing, but you know it's hiding sorrow. And really there is grief waiting for you. He also observes that wisdom and mourning is better than foolishness and pleasure. Because laughter and foolishness is quickly gone. It doesn't bear lasting fruit. He says that listening to rebuke is better than listening to songs. That it's better to hear the harder truth than the easily sung song. He says that oppression or a bribe, it ruins the heart, corrupts. And then he says, this is my favorite one, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Because anybody can start things, really. You know, all you need is a little, what he calls, haughtiness. But to see things through to the end of a matter requires patience and character, because you have to endure. And so the real value is in how things end. If you've ever done renovations at home, you know the end is much harder than the beginning. It's much easier to get 80% of the work done, isn't it? But to see through to the very end, that really takes a deliberate uh, attempt. It takes uh, intentionality and choosing. But at the end of all of these insights about how life works, he comes to this conclusion my eyes have seen that the righteous perish while the wicked prolong their life. And so the preacher says, nothing makes sense. You know, there's all this wisdom about how the end of a matter is better than the beginning. And yet I see these righteous people who will have patience and they're seeing matters to the very end, yet they perish. And then there are wicked fools among us. And they don't practice wisdom at all and yet they prolong their life. So what's really the key to life, he asks. What do you think? Does life work out as you planned? If you do these five things, does that guarantee you success? And the answer is no. We all have seen this, how those who are good those who have been givers their whole life, they may die tragic deaths or die too soon or die in a painful way or their lot in life just seems really, really hard. As I read this uh, verse, I thought about my, one of my life mentors, my uh, Grammy Gwen Maynard up in Burlington, Vermont. I just received a card from her yesterday. She's doing all right but life continues to be a challenge. Her whole life has been extremely difficult. Things that I don't want to experience at all, no matter how much wisdom is promised on the other side of them. I don't want it. So much tragedy, so many tears. Each day she prays and pleads. I wonder, why does this kind of life why is it why is it befallen my dear grammy gwen <clears throat> so the preacher concludes there's all this wisdom but yet it doesn't seem to play out so then he has advice for us he says don't be excessively wise or righteous Don't get too attached to your own perfection or performance. Don't be legalistic. Don't bet your life on it. Don't don't put all your eggs in that basket either. There's a kind of balance and restraint he's inviting us to practice when it comes to wisdom or righteousness. Don't make yourself and your life all about that. And On the reverse, he says, don't be too wicked or don't be too much of a fool either. Don't swing the other way. Recognize that none are perfect. Even the righteous ones are wicked sometimes, and even the wicked ones are righteous sometimes. He gives an example. He says, sometimes you're going to overhear your servant cursing you. What are you going to do, punish them for it? How? Why would you do that? Haven't you cursed others before also? Are you curse-free? He says, no. You also have moments. Moments overtake all of us, and things fall out of our lips that we didn't intend or mean. And so be gracious with yourself and with others. He says, learn what it means to hold one thing while holding the other also. Be broad and open and consider that the key to life is not human wisdom. It's not human righteousness. Sometimes the wicked prosper. Sometimes the righteous uh, fail in life. So be open and listen. You can't have just one key to life. Hold off on your judgments. Wait for it. Just because your servant cursed you doesn't mean there are all these other things and now you need to fire them. It doesn't work that way. Wait for it. Wait for it. Because only, he says, God is in control and knows the final destiny of us all. Only God knows what his purposes are and how he's going to use you in your brief lifetime. He says that life actually isn't about you, your success, or your failure at all. It's all about God's glory. He's the centerpiece of the story. He's the protagonist, not us. And God may use me for a while, and then he may release me. God may use you, and then he may release you. He may have you learn through a hard job or through an easy job. He may give you wealth. He may give you poverty. He's not discounting human responsibility or human choice. There is free human agency. However, consider, ultimately, God is in control. And history, all of human history, not just my personal history or yours, it's moving towards something, towards a kind of climax. And there's nothing that's going to thwart God's plans or purposes. We're somehow all being moved along. There's a current that's carrying the whole body of water towards this one direction, which is his purposes. So he says this, consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? So we'll pause there. Have you ever found yourself or caught yourself obsessed maybe even for years on trying to unbend something that life has bent for whatever reason? You know, this reminds me of the serenity prayer. Lord, help me to change the things I can and to accept the things I cannot. And the wisdom to know the difference. Do you have the wisdom to know the difference? There's great power If you're able to accept things in life as they are and focus on your response rather than trying to change the bent thing that cannot be bent, unbent. I know some of us have really hard marriages, it's always been hard. It continues after years and years to still be a struggle. Some of us have parents that we struggle with or siblings. Some of us have children or grandchildren that we just ache for and cry about. Sometimes we struggle financially, and it seems to be a pattern, a theme in our life. Maybe there's a personality trait or a trait about your physical body. You know, things in life don't always line up so well. And there are seemingly permanent fixtures in your life. Consider the wisdom of just maybe accepting it as it is. Maybe that's not your fight. Maybe that energy can be spent elsewhere. Consider the work of God for who is able to straighten what he has bent. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. What is God doing? Why would he make Adversity. Why would he make prosperity? Why happiness and sadness? We don't fully understand. Man will not discover all the whys that we carry around with us. But underlying, even beneath those why questions, is a deep trust that it is God this would be where I'd want to challenge my uh, non-believing friends. If you don't believe in a God, somebody who is omnipotent, somebody who is moving all of human history towards a climactic and desirable end, then what's your hope? You know, how how do you enter this thing called life? How do you do it? Well, you have to work really hard to unbend things because things just aren't right. And it's either you or nobody else. There's no higher uh, purpose or force that's caring for you or seeing of you and moving you along with with, uh, uh, human history. It's all about your choice and your effort. It is your willpower. It is your grit. If you don't believe in God, where do you find the rest? How do you find hope? And how do you not become arrogant if you do succeed in bending life uh, the way you want it to bend? And then what? And then what happens to you? It's, what's, the, what's the gospel you believe in then? You believe in the gospel of pulling yourself up? Gospel of your own effort? The course of human history and its unfolding has been interrupted, we believe, by a man named Jesus Christ and what he accomplished here on earth. That's the cross. This is a peculiar verse I wanted to point out to you. Verse 27 to 28 says this, Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation which I am still seeking but have not found. Okay, notice what he's saying. In all my searching, I've been adding one thing to another, just knocking down, you know, one question after another, looking under one rock after another to look for an explanation. And I'm still doing this. I still haven't found it, but here's one thing I discovered. I have found one man among a thousand. It's such a peculiar little phrase. And you can read every commentary out there, no commentator has a great answer for this unless you understand this one man to be Christ. <clears throat> Listen to uh, Fleming Rutledge's book, uh, chapter, I forget which chapter it is, but the book is titled The Crucifixion. Here's a little quote from there. It says this, yet at the most fundamental level, and this can't be emphasized too strongly, the cross is in no way religious. The cross is by a very long way the most irreligious object ever to find its way into the heart of faith. It is the most non-religious and horrendous feature of the gospel. The crucifixion marks out the essential distinction between Christianity and religion. Religion as defined in these pages is either an organized system of belief or alternatively a loose collection of ideas and practices projected out of humanity's needs and wishes. The cross, though, is irreligious because no human being individually or human beings collectively would have projected their hopes, wishes, longings, and needs onto a crucified man. I want you to hear what the author is saying here. You know, we look for keys to life, and we come up with keys to life. What are, what are the, some of the things you thought of? What are the insights? Work hard. That's a positive thing. What's another way to draw hope or guarantee future success? Be thankful. Cultivate a grateful heart. Go to church. Go to school. Pile on the education. Make money. Invest the money. Give away the money. These are the thoughts we have. When somebody says to you, give me your top three formulas for success, none of us said, bank all of your life's hopes onto a crucified man. And that's why what we practice in life naturally as human beings is superstition. It's what we would call religion. You you input and so you get an output. You're good your life is going to be good. You give to the church, life will give to you. You abstain and you listen to God uh, in a moral sense, and God's going to bless you. That's how we think, because that's religious thought. That's our human nature. And then, and then God says, you know, this is going to sound totally foolish but my foolishness is going to shame your wisdom because all of your wisdom is unable to imagine that all our hopes actually hang on a crucified Messiah. It makes no sense whatsoever. Second Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The scriptures come to us, and it says, actually, all of that wisdom, it's not about how to live your life. It's describing the only wise man who ever walked the face of the earth. And it's the man, Jesus Christ. And he, not you, he who knew no sin, he became all of our sin on our behalf so that we might be made right in life. It's such a counterintuitive thought. You know, life and culture and all around me, everything I read, everybody, every time is pushing me to perform hard. And here, God comes to us and says, actually, I've done everything for you. And the key to life is my death. The key to your life is my death. The key to your wisdom is my foolishness. There is no life map or worldview or wisdom that could have possibly humanly lead us, have led us to conclude that Jesus Christ is the answer to life. He wasn't a Messiah who rode in on a white horse and conquered the Roman government and politically set his people free. He didn't uh, materialize prosperity for us. Instead, he rode in on a humble donkey, and he died. A sinner's death, and he was crucified between th- two thieves, and he was buried in a borrowed tombstone, and he was resurrected not by his own power, but by putting his trust in his Father. And the Holy Spirit raised this dead man back from the grave. And that's where we hang our hope. And this is the paradox, the irony of how life actually works. We could not have imagined such a thing. It's so foolish that we would never, ever do that. I want to read you a passage that Paul wrote that describes uh, this uh, wisdom. He says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech. Let me tell you, I really want some cleverness of speech. I pray for it every week. (laughs) So I get it. So that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. One of my favorite pieces of feedback over the 20 years of ministry that I personally get a lot, quite too much actually, is Peter, it's so encouraging that you are a pastor. You're so irreverent. You're so vulgar. You're so inconsistent. You're prone to depression. You make so many mistakes. You make people cry all the time for all the wrong reasons. (laughs) B minus as a dad, maybe a B as a husband. (laughs) You know, you didn't study very hard. It's so encouraging, Peter. If somebody like you can be used of God and hold a position of authority and leadership, gosh, I feel like anybody can. I have received some version of this comment consistently over 20 years. (laughs) But it is is an illustration for me how one without cleverness of speech, a fool to others who is obviously perishing. But it's this frame, this picture frame that is framing the, the person of Christ. It's the gospel that's shining Because it's really not about me. I know that. I know that. I really know that. For it is written, he goes on, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, you, consider you, brothers and sisters, that you were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Don't you love that? God is actively nullifying the things that are, so that he can nullify boasting. If you are proud, you will fall. You will. That's one guarantee you can take, back, take to the bank. And he finishes here. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God is shaping us through our foolishness, through the obvious contradiction that we are, that we might embody and be the living letters explaining the wisdom of God, the righteousness of God, and the sanctification and the redemption. That's what God's doing. Can you unbend what God has bent? That's Jesus' job. And the world was all bending towards chaos and decay. And God interrupted this process. At the fullness of time, God sent his son to die on the cross. Into our wisdom and all our principles and do's and don'ts. God inserted and erected the cross of Christ and cast a long shadow of anything that we ever considered wisdom. It says all wisdom, all power, all hope hangs on this cross. Believe in him and you will be saved. That's the Christian gospel. That's the Christian wisdom. And that's the foolishness we are called to embrace. I have a quote here from Tim Keller that I'm going to cut out. I'll leave it in the sermon notes for you to look at uh, when you access the sermon notes folder. I have some considerations for us as we uh, uh, close and conclude this sermon. Um. The first one is figure out in your life what what you need to forsake unbending. You know, you can keep fighting. You can keep trying to change your spouse, for example. That's not going to go well, by the way, if you hadn't figured that out yet. Forsake unbending what God has bent. Think about that. What are some things in your life that you need to just accept? Second, what would it mean for you to be more open and humble and hold loosely? So that not everything has to be perfect. You don't have to sprint towards everything. But what is okay? Okay. What are some things you can hold in one hand and the other hand you'll hold something else? Three, find hope. Learn how to find hope in reversals and paradoxes, surprises and irony. There's a lot of grace in this world and not everything's going to add up. Not everything's going to be mathematic. One plus one isn't always going to equal two. And that's life. But there's grace in that. And I want to invite you to seek truthfulness and depth. You know, so many of us just live sort of in a shallow place and we're angsting and and fussing about these small little things in life. And yet God says, you know, I really don't care about that. You can spend all day thinking about that and fussing about that and trying to get all those little things aligned. And God says, I'm after truthfulness and depth in your life. You know, can we work together, he says, on what I'm working on? Maybe there are some battles you need to just stop fighting and let go of. Cut your losses. I have one story. I'm so excited um, to have Bailey McKim uh, come up. And uh, she is a good friend of my 13-year-old daughter. She also is 13. And uh, we were just talking one day, and uh, she's, God's really gifted her in um, moving towards public speaking. And so I invited her to um, think about the sermon that I gave her a summary of earlier in the week. And uh, she said, yes, I'll tell a story about that. So, Bailey.
0: Thank you. All right. Good morning, everyone. As I said, my name is Bailey McKim and I get the privilege of speaking today. So, circumstances, they're what we depend on. Future circumstances we can't predict, as Peter said. We can look back on certain circumstances and regret them. We can miss them or bottle them up in our hearts and save them. But the life we have ahead of us is not predictable. So, what do we do? Do we live in fear? Do we prepare for the worst, for the best? What I've learned in the past is to never live in fear. If God didn't exist, we would still be stuck in the chains of evil, fear grasping at every second. But because of our faithful Jesus, who knows what's ahead of us, who has us in his hands, we shall not be afraid. Psalm 31, verse 14 through 15 says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Also, Psalm 62, verse 1 through 2. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress and I will never be shaken. So I would like to share a time in my life where I had to trust God, not knowing what was going to happen in my life or in a situation, but believing Jesus was there with me, um, knowing what was best and carrying me through it, even if it didn't make sense. So my grandma had cancer about three years back, and she was always um, a very strong, vibrant woman with sincere laughter and brought joy to my life. Um, Jesus was within her soul, and at this time she read Jesus Calling and read her Bible. She had lots of support from family and friends, and she trusted God through it all. Um, but her cancer worsened and worsened until she was too weak to get out of bed. And so at this time, um, lots of her family gathered around, and I was thinking, what's going to happen to her? Why would God do this to us? What what will my life look like after she's gone? How will my grandpa remain happy, and why her? All these questions about why and what will happen next, what will life be like after this? Unknown answers to questions about the future. The fear of the unknown entangling our hearts and souls. Anxiety of what to come after her death. I was missing something, though. I think a lot of us get caught up in worrying, get wrapped up in worthless thoughts that we can't answer. Those thoughts and that anxiety, those questions and that worry, the answer is to simply give it to the Lord. Say, hey, God, I don't know why you're letting this happen and what's in store for me next, but I'm going to have faith only you can give me. And trust. Trust that you're beside me saying, it's okay, Bailey, I got gotcha. you. I know it hurts and it doesn't make sense and you're anxious about the future, but your life is with me. I'm the only one who knows what's best for you. I see your future ahead of you and I'll be there for the ups and downs, sheltering you from the storm, smiling with you in the sunshine. So I trusted God. I trusted that him taking my grandma was the best plan, that sorrow in the future could be mended by his unending comfort. My sweet grandma would, would be in the best heavenly place with her father. So trust God in everything. We don't know if we'll get hurt tomorrow. We don't know if, we'll, if plans that we have made will, will fail, but we do know one thing. God never fails. He is never wrong. He's always right, powerful in his ways, loving on his sheep and wanting the best for them. He holds you in the palm of his hands. If he is your shepherd, no wolf can harm his herd of sheep. So stay grounded in the soil of Jesus. He is trustworthy. I once heard a quote, God plus nothing equals everything. Put your faith and trust in him always. Thank you.
1: I can't compete with that, so let's close. (laughs) Galatians chapter 2, Paul concludes this about himself, and I want to invite us to do the same. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Amen.